We would like to welcome all of our listeners to this inaugural edition of CWR Will Talk. And today's very important program, Police Killing Black Males. We encourage you to call in because we do want to hear from you and get your comments as you participate in uh, this, this program. Uh, we will have a time when you will be able to call in later on in the program today. We're proud to have as our guest today, uh, Mr. John Sutton. And uh, Mr. Sutton is a former California police officer, and he also served 25 years in the U.S. Department of Justice with the Drug Enforcement Agency. Mr. Sutton also uh, participated in the uh, New York Governor's Task Force involving officers shooting officers. He has traveled extensively to 42 foreign countries and all over the United States, and he is the author of two books, The Difference Makers and Thin White Lines. We also have with us attorney Jermaine Wyrick. Uh, attorney Wyrick is an award-winning criminal defense lawyer, and his areas of practice include civil litigation and police misconduct. He is a sought-after public speaker, a published writer, and has made numerous appearances as a legal advisor on radio and television programs. In June of 2001, as a member of the American Trial Lawyers Association, he was admitted to practice at the United States Supreme Court. We welcome both of you to CWR World News Talk. Good morning, Donnell. Good morning. At the very outset, uh, we want to say that we have nothing but the utmost respect for real, true police officers and fully support the men and women who put their lives on the line every day without fear or concern for their own lives to serve and protect with courage and dignity those with whom they have been entrusted to protect. We thank you sincerely for your service. However, there are those in law enforcement who abuse their authority and use their badge as a license to murder. Today's conversation is about those officers. To put things into perspective, according to a tracker by the Washington Post, 232 black people were shot and killed by police in 2016 alone, and 34% of the unarmed people killed in 2016 were black. In almost all of these killings, no charges were brought against the officers involved or the charges were dismissed. Even with video evidence in some cases, the criminal justice system has failed to effectively investigate and prosecute officers involved in these killings. Now, John, how has this rogue racist element evolved in many police departments around the country? I think in many police departments around the country, we have uh, police officers who are using old techniques in law enforcement. In addition to that, uh, there is a tendency for policemen to be very suspicious of black males. In many instances, black males are treated differently than non-black males. In some instances, we have police officers making stop, frisk, and search, actually doing what is called hunting. Uh, They are looking for activity in order to uh, arrest or stop a black person. Some of the shootings, a few of the shootings that take place are really honest mistakes in judgment that some officers make. Uh, We do have a 
a number of very professional, very good law enforcement agency and agents uh, and police officers. And we also have a, a number who are rogue police officers, uh, some who are out there who uh, work and operate uh, without any reins. And as you mentioned earlier, a lot of them commit murders uh, where they kill black men in the performance of their duty. And I think sometime if we look back at it, it could actually constitute murder. Oh, you know, this it's real interesting that you said that. And the sad part about this is that uh, the good officers have to take, uh, you know, a lot of flack for uh, the actions of those rogue officers who engage in this type of activity. Now, Jermaine, uh, why is it so difficult, uh, as it was in the case of the Baltimore state attorney who charged officers in the Freddie Gray case, why, why is it so difficult, number one, to charge officers involved in killing unarmed black men, and number two, to get a grand jury to indict them or a jury to convict them? Because uh, we always give uh, law enforcement officers the benefit of the doubt just by virtue of the fact, as you referenced earlier, the sacrifice that they make every day in terms of uh, risking their own livelihood in terms of law enforcement. What's extremely problematic, however, is that we have a few bad apples in the bunch. And because we have those few bad apples in the bunch, which in my opinion demonstrate implicit bias against African Americans that presume us guilty unless and until proven innocent, when ideally under the Constitution and the laws that we operate under the United States of America, it's supposed to be in reverse, uh, you see these types of horrific tragedies occur, uh, whereby even statistically, although we only compromise 14% of the population, we have a situation where if you're an African-American, you're three times more likely to be shot by a police officer than a white citizen. In terms of charges specifically, uh, oftentimes, unfortunately, there's a close nexus between the charging agencies and uh, law enforcement. A lot of times it's even a matter of the mindset of the charging agencies and um, the police officers, oftentimes prostitutors, um, and even in instances of judges, have very close political ties to police officers. Oftentimes the laws are crafted whereby it's a very high threshold, even in terms of civil litigation or even in terms of what I do. Uh, in order to file a federal lawsuit under Section 1983, which is our traditional civil rights law, you can't just prove that the individual person was victimized by police abuse. You also have to prove that there's some type of pattern which, quite frankly, under the uh, Justice Administration that we saw under President Obama, we were starting to see at least investigations in Baltimore, in Chicago, in Ferguson, Missouri, where we saw some of our most horrific tragedies. You saw investigations where they started showing that there was a disproportionate number of African Americans being victimized by police in shootings and arrests and approaches and then everything else. And I think, unfortunately, with the new administration we have, where we now have just Sessions, who's an avowed racist, you're going to basically see police get even greater protections as opposed to these investigations that were starting under the previous administration being brought to some type of accountability, even in terms of some type of federal charges being lodged when a state system, such as in Baltimore, has failed us. Oh, thank you for that, Jermaine. You know, uh, 
from what I'm hearing, it sounds like maybe there's some attitudes and some agendas involved in, in these actions. And when I was doing research for this program, I watched the PBS documentary special, The Talk, Race in America. And on that program, to speak to this, the sheriff from that documentary stated that some officers have the mentality that they would rather be tried by 12 than carried by six. Can you hold on one second? Uh, the sheriff also said that it is a belief among many officers that everyone is carrying a gun these days. Now, in addition, a 2016 Pew Research Center poll of 8,000 police officers, uh, in that poll, 93% said they have become more concerned about safety, and 75% said interactions between police and blacks have become more intense. So what, if anything, do the sheriff's comments and the findings of the Pew poll suggest about the current mentality of uh, some officers of fear factor? as it relates to acting so quickly to shoot and kill unarmed black males? I think it's more than a fear factor. I think you have racial bias. I think oftentimes, unfortunately, you have individuals that join police forces for the wrong reason, quite frankly. I think you have individuals, especially in, in, in these tragic-type situations where you see unarmed individuals being shot. You have individuals that basically are carrying out executed, legally sanctioned lynchings, especially when there's no accountability. And I think these individuals have a certain fear, have a certain paranoia when they see a black male, but that black male is automatically something that's menacing and threatening in many instances in which we haven't been. Okay. Now, you know, uh, we want to take a look at some of these, uh, examine some of these incidents and involving deadly force. Uh, and this may be difficult for some of us to revisit because, as you mentioned, they are horrific. Uh, we won't be able to look at all of them because there are so many, but we see a lot of few that we wanted to uh, want to discuss today to kind of focus in on uh, deadly force and the use of deadly force and whether or not it, it, it may have been justified. The first of those is uh, Tamir Rice. Uh, it's a 12-year-old black boy with a toy gun shot in, who was shot in the abdomen at uh, point-blank range and killed within two seconds of the arrival of police, and this was in Cleveland. Uh, then there was uh, Walter Scott in North Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, Mr. Scott was shot from behind while fleeing. The officer was uh, brought to uh, uh, was charged, and there was a trial, and that resulted in a mistrial. Uh, then there was Orlando Castillo, who was shot several times in Falcon Heights, Minnesota, a suburb of uh, St. Paul while reaching for his ID after telling police that he had a gun permit and was armed. And the officer's attorney said the officer was reacting to the presence of a gun and that he thought that the suspect looked like a possible match for an armed robbery suspect. Then there was Laquan McDaniel, 17 years old, who uh, allegedly refused uh, request to drop his knife at which point an officer opened fire and shot him in the chest. A witness whose car was stopped by the police action saw McDonald, in his word, shying away or trying to get away from the officers. And in his opinion, uh, that McDonald was not posing an immediate threat to anyone after he was successfully boxed in by the police. And he stated that uh, Laquan fell to the ground after first being shot, but that the officer continued to fire bullets into his body, according to reports, 16, a total of 16 rounds. 
Now, there are others, like Freddie Gray in Baltimore that we mentioned earlier, Austin Sterling in Baton Rouge, Eric Harris in Tulsa, Eric Garner in New York, and Michael Brown in Ferguson, and the list goes on. So, John, in these incidents, after the countless uh, and others that are like them that have occurred in recent years, can you explain why officers possibly in these incidents would use deadly force? And, Jermaine, uh, when John gets through, can you explain why too often the courts rule that these killings are justified? I think, um, as indicated earlier, a lot of officers, uh, non-black officers, have a tremendous fear of black men. And in that fear, their first response is to eliminate the threat that they seem that is imposed upon them. We have some officers who have what is called trigger fingers, and when they come out with the guns drawn, almost instinctively, the first reaction when a suspect or a person does not obey their command is to respond by shooting, uh, which is very sad. We also have uh, police departments who teach uh, their officers, uh, they explain safety over the right of the individual. Uh, they try to teach officers that their safety is more important than the, the citizen or the person that they are stopping. So as a consequence, many officers are out of fear, running on adrenaline. They are likely to shoot first and ask questions later. Uh, it's very sad that Many of these police officers are using old, antique ways of law enforcement. They don't want to put themselves in any type of threat. Uh, and then we also have, uh, in that same vein, we have officers killing uh, black males in situations which is actually suicide by cops. As you recall, after the Michael Brown uh, killing or shooting, about a week later, a young man who apparently was mentally deranged uh, approached a police officer with a knife, and he was screaming, kill me, kill me. And when he came within, I think, within 20 feet of the police officers, he was killed. Uh, this was an obvious case of a deranged person uh, who, uh, even though he may have posed a threat, uh, that could have been another way of apprehending that person. I subscribe to a number of things uh, that can be done to alleviate these types of killing. One is a shooting a person with a uh, stun gun, shooting a person with a gun to actually immobilize and the same type of guns we shoot wild animals, you know, to slow them down or to use a net, uh, throw a net over a person like we do to capture uh, a wild animal. Now, this sounds weird, but in the end, we still have a live person. Uh, we don't have a person who's shot a number of times in the chest. I think that a lot of the police departments, uh, they think that there's a tremendous threat uh, with the black community out there. And I think a lot of this is backed up by some of the crimes that they see being uh, perpetrated in the black neighborhoods. And I think they have a tendency a lot of time to overreact. Now, I would still say, having an officer in Compton, California, uh, that there are a lot of very good police officers who every day uh, put their lives on the line. And they deserve the credit. But again, we do have the 
rogue police officers, and we also have police officers who make honest mistakes in judgments. Okay. So, in other words, uh, if I hear you correctly, there's uh, sometimes an overreaction, and other times uh, that there are other alternatives that could be used that could save lives, and it's good. Uh, I think we have, uh, we may have lost uh, Jermaine. Are you still there, Jermaine? No, I'm still here. Yeah, I'm okay, still here. Okay, okay. All right. Uh, would you respond in, in regard to uh, the, the situation, too, as to uh, as far as the, the, the court's uh, situation and the legal view on the use of deadly force? I think a lot of times, unfortunately or fortunately, rather, the law is a matter of interpretation. So say, for instance, in an instance such as in Baltimore or an instance such as North Carolina, we saw charges being brought. It was a situation whereby you had a prosecutor who at least interpreted the actions of the officers in those particular cases as being unreasonable. Conversely, however, such as the tragedy that we saw with the 12-year-old boy in, in Cleveland who was with a, a, some type of toy gun or something of this nature or even a situation in reference with the young man with the knife, Unfortunately, you have situations where, conversely from that, if you have a uh, prosecutor or a judge or, or whoever is given the responsibility of interpreting the law, interprets the law in a way that is pro-police, that protects what you call the blue wall of silence, they will give great deference, they will give great discretion to say, even under these tragic circumstances where the victim may have not posed any threat or any deadly threat whatsoever under the circumstances. The officer still acted objectively reasonable, even if we as reasonable people ourselves, the conscious of the community would think to the contrary of that. It's all a matter of interpretation. Like he just referenced a few minutes ago, this notion of stop and frisk that we heard a lot about in a presidential election. And we even heard that the new president Trump wants to, implement stop and frisk as a way of uh, thwarting out crime in Chicago and other uh, urban areas where they feel as though we have to be very careful about that. The reason we have to be very careful about that is quite frankly, stop and frisk has been a law since 1968 when the United States Supreme Court said that an officer can approach an individual citizen if they have reasonable suspicion to believe that person is committing or about to commit a crime. So stop and frisk is nothing new. But what's very controversial now in light of these racial disparities that we see in the criminal justice system is that stop and frisk in a heightened form, in a quite frankly a racist form, was implemented a few years ago in New York in order, in order to purportedly bring crime levels down in New York. And there was a federal judge there that saw that there was a disproportionate number of stops, harassments, quite frankly, of unarmed individuals, of, uh, of innocent individuals, of law-abiding citizens that were basically being roughed up and, 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 and having their constitutional rights completely violated under the notion of stop and frisk. So basically that policy was thrown out in New York because fortunately you had a judge who was willing to look at those racial disparities and see that those racial disparities were basically very unfair and very unequal uh, treatment of African-Americans in our criminal justice system. 
this question is for both of you. You know, as we look at this, and it's uh, obviously these these a lot of these crimes are horrific. And I appreciate you, John, and and and, and also you too, uh, Jermaine, for uh, mentioning the the fact that there are uh, numerous good uh, police officers throughout the country. And sadly, as I mentioned before, unfortunately, it's the bad ones that get all the press. And so that kind of skews things in public opinion to where many people uh, feel like all policemen are bad, which is not the case. And we want to emphasize uh, that's not what we're focusing on here. We're talking about those police officers who abuse their authority and it results in the, the killing of innocent people. Now, let, let me ask you this, this, this question is for both of you. Uh, although this is pure speculation, in your professional opinions, in most of these instances that we have discussed and that have uh, been in the news where unarmed black people have been killed, if the victims had been white rather than black, would they probably still be alive today? I would say absolutely. I would echo okay. absolutely. In addition to that, I would say that um, Attorney Warwick alluded to the new Attorney General being a racist. I would echo the same thing in that. In the Ferguson case, uh, the Department of Justice have gone in and investigated many of these shootings. And one of the most uh, troubling things out of the Ferguson uh, investigation, they found that the Ferguson Police Department was using uh, tickets to gain uh, resources, to obtain resources. They were writing tickets uh, in the black, more tickets in the black neighborhood as a form of resource. Their investigative uh, technique involving blacks were well out of proportion as it involved their approaches to whites. The New York Attorney General has uh, indicated that the, what the Department of Justice did, they went in, they put a uh, some kind of a decree against uh, the department, indicating that without charging them civilly or criminally, that there were some errors where they needed to make corrections. I think the new attorney general has alluded to that he feels that um, these types of decree against these police department hinders or hampers the police from effective law enforcement which is, in, in a sense, sending a message that he condoned the police uh, doing what they have done up to this point and continuing to do what they are doing. It is my opinion that he thinks that uh, when you have a police department under these decrees, and you have policemen under uh, public scrutiny, that the policemen cannot do their job effectively, which I totally disagree. I think that uh, the police or should be under uh, the community review, should be under public review. Uh, and I think that the current Jeff Session, I believe that he is a step backwards in criminal law enforcement from the federal, state, and local level. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And the only thing I would add that I know, too, is one of the things, even in terms of whether or not if the uh, victims were white, whether or not they would survive. Let's look at when whites commit violent crimes. Let's look at when Dylan Roof went down into a church in South Carolina and killed a church full of African Americans. He was taken in safely. They drove him through Burger King. You look at when you've heard about 
tragedies in these schools or, or tragedies in movie theaters where people go in and mass numbers with weapons and shoot. Those individuals are taken in a lot. There was a situation here in the Detroit area in the nearby suburb, Dearborn, a couple of weeks ago, where some masked men went into a police department with guns ready to shoot police officers. They came out alive. When I first heard that story, the first thing that I said to myself, I know whoever did that was an African-American. And sure enough, when I followed up with the facts, they weren't. You know, that, that, that's the sad part about all of this, and I hope that's the message that our listeners will get. Uh, it, it's unfortunate that color, color is the, the main factor involved in, in, in most of these killings. We're going to take a break right here, and, and we'll be back. And when we come back, we're going to discuss denial as uh, it factors into this equation. And uh, join us next week when our guest will be Ms. Julie Owens who is a nationally recognized violence against women consultant. Ms. Owens will discuss with us women under attack and share with us her knowledge about the effect of domestic abuse on the victims, their families, and the perpetrators, and what we all need to know about this important issue. And in three weeks on March 28th, joining us to discuss the joys of traveling abroad is best-selling author Patricia Schultz. Ms. Schultz is the author of 1,000 Places to See Before You Die, which was recently revised. You can win $100 in our Joys to Traveling Abroad cash giveaway just by submitting your travel questions for Ms. Schultz on the promotions page to our website. And that uh, website address is www.cwrworldnews.net. That's www dot cwrworldnews.net and that's under the promotions tab all entries must be submitted by midnight central standard time on friday march 24th so submit your entry today and you can win 100 dollars uh, this offer is void where prohibited by law now, welcome back and if you're just joining us i am donnell edwards your host for cwr world news talk our guest today our former california police officer and DEA Senior Executive, Mr. John Sutton, and Criminal Defense Attorney, Media Legal Advisor and Writer, Attorney Jermaine Wyrick. And this is the conversation America has been waiting for, police officers killing black males. Now, despite the overwhelming evidence that we have a serious rogue police problem in America that results in the needless killing of unarmed black males, many, both black and white, refuse to acknowledge that there is an issue with the police and that if you are against the police, you are against law and order. To put this into perspective, listen to this excerpt from the Netflix documentary, 13th, directed by award-winning director Ava DuVernay. It would be a mistake to say, as many people do in the current context, that, oh, if you're against the police, then you're against law and order, and these are hardworking civil servants, they're putting their lives on the line for you every day. And, you know, that's true. People who who join the police do so, you know, to do these sorts of things. But if you dismiss black complaints of mistreatment by police as being completely rooted in our modern context, then you're missing the the point completely. There has never been a period in our history where the law and order branch of the state has not operated against the freedoms, the liberties, the options, the choices that have been available for the black community, generally speaking. And to ignore that racial heritage, to ignore that 
historical context means that you can't have an informed debate about the current state of blacks and police relationship today because this didn't just appear out of nothing. This is the product of a, a centuries-long historical process, and to not reckon with that is, is to shut off solutions. That was uh, Professor Kevin Gannon, who is a history professor at Grandview University in Des Moines, Iowa. And uh, if you have not seen Ava DuVernay's documentary 13th, uh, which is about the 13th Amendment, which was supposedly abolished slavery in this country, I strongly recommend, regardless of what your race, color, or ethnicity may be, I strongly recommend that because uh, it is a part of the Constitution and some powerful, powerful things come, come out of that documentary. Now, getting back to Dr. Gannon's uh, comments, is Professor Gannon correct in his assertion that we cannot have any meaningful discussion about blacks and the police unless we consider the entirety of the history of the relationship between blacks and the police in America? There's definitely a historical context by virtue of the fact that police, and if you do your research on this, police forces were actually founded in most cities, especially the South, to catch runaway slaves. And unfortunately, when we see these tragedies occur where individuals are profiled racially by the police, that's just the mindset of white supremacy coming into play. So we, we see in, just go ahead. Go ahead, John. I think in addition to that, uh, as it involved the run, uh, runaway slaves of police, we also had uh, during the days before the Civil Rights Act, and even now we've had the police actually abusing the rights of people in the South and throughout the North as well, uh, given uh, their law enforcement efforts more prone toward the government than it was preserving the civil rights of the the black uh, in their community. Probably one of the things I'd like to add, which is a side issue, which is troubling to me, is that we see a number of blacks being killed involving misdemeanor offenses and traffic violations. Uh, we also have a number of blacks being killed involved in uh, situations where there is no actual, just to me, no justification for the violence perpetrated against them. In other words, the apprehension uh, method. I also know that a lot of times... Uh, uh, some police officers' approach to many minorities have precipitative uh, results. That is how they approach uh, many minorities. Uh, and I know in law enforcement sometimes it is uh, you have a, a kind of vernacular that you have to use uh, sometimes to be effective, sometimes like uh, in apprehending a, a murder suspect, a robbery suspect, or Sometimes police officers use profanity and a and a uh, base uh, authoritative voice, and I, I know that sometimes when some police officers approach uh, minorities, even in a misdemeanor, suspicious situation, the same type of communication uh, is exhibited by them instead of saying referring to them as sir and misses and stuff like that. They don't. Uh, many citizens, good upstanding citizens, are treated with that same type of uh, communication uh, that they use in apprehending uh, suspects. 
Thank you for that, John and, and, and Jermaine. Now, uh, since, since it is a uh, point of uh, record, there's a large, large percentage of police officers are more concerned for their safety today than in the past. And also that uh, they feel that interactions between police and blacks have become more intense. What do you uh, recommend? Uh, what do young black males who are stopped by police need to be aware of? What do they need to know about the way they conduct themselves when detained and after inter- interact with police in general? This, this is for both of you. I know. Uh, all the times. I'm sorry. Go ahead. The thing that I, I think, always suggest is that they remain calm, cool, and collected. And even if they feel as though a police officer is completely in the wrong, that is not the time to escalate the situation by becoming angry or hostile or mean or whatever. Two wrongs don't necessarily make it right. So even if they feel as though an officer is being wrong, the proper way to address that is to file a citizen's complaint or give with an attorney or someone of that nature after the fact and just try to keep the situation from reaching an escalated situation of anger and violence if it's within their control to do that. John? I I agree with that in addition to that. I think that they should remain calm and uh, realize that in most states, even if they're in the process of being arrested, in most states, the citizen does not have the right to resist and arrest, whether the arrest is legal or not. And I think um, a young black male should not uh, be aggravated sometimes by the voice or how the arresting officer or stopping officer approaches them in a suspicious way in many instances, even when they... Uh, tend to violate some of their uh, rights, like search and seizure rights. A lot of officers, some officers sometimes when they see a suspect in a vehicle, they want to search the whole vehicle and the people inside of the vehicle, uh, and they feel they have a a right to do that. In addition to that, uh, there is a a communication problem when uh, many officers state that I uh, commanded him to do so-and-so, and I think the public, some young Amer- young black males or feel that why, what gives him the authority to command me to do uh, what? Uh, and I think that causes a problem. And I think the officers should approach most black males, whether they are suspicious of any crime or not, with a degree of civility. Sir, may I see your driver's license? And they talk to them like they are human and not brashly. And I think uh, this will de-escalate any situation. I know that some black males have a tendency to flee uh, or to be very suspicious of officers. And I know, again, I like to say that we have a large number of outstanding officers. I can think of an officer in North Little Rock, Tommy Norman, who is an ideal police officer. He was on television uh, recently showing that he had taken a bunch of kids in North Little Rock uh, to the Oscars in Hollywood. But he does such a tremendous amount of work in the community. I think officers uh, should get to know a lot of the people in the area that they are policing. I know in many police, many areas, there's no 
community-oriented police programs. There's no real good emergency preparedness program. And I think that with that, uh, knowing the public, I think that a lot of the violence could be de-escalated. Okay, very good. So uh, what you're saying is that uh, both of you, from from what I hear, is that uh, this is something that can be fixed, but it's going to take uh, effort on the part of all parties involved to step up to the plate and make sure that we uh, we make something happen. You know, now is an opportune time to do something to fix this problem because these repeated incidents, if anything good, one of the good things that's come out of this is that these uh, repeated incidents have galvanized Americans from all races and ethnicities who are appalled at what is happening and are calling for positive change. And we acknowledge that white people get killed too by the police and also that white lives matter, black lives matter, all lives matter for that, that fact. But uh, it has to be noted that white people don't get killed by the police for no other reason than their color and not with the frequency that blacks do uh, who are two to five times more likely to be killed by police than whites. So, gentlemen, in your views, uh, and you've already mentioned some of the things here, but uh, to, to elaborate on this, how can police in the communities they serve work together to restore trust and improve relations and eliminate, eliminate the needless killing of young black males by the police and not just blacks, uh, because this is a, an American problem, but Latinos and other minorities who, and people in general who are abused uh, by the police. I would like to also add that uh, I know that within most of our major uh, metropolitan areas, we have a very serious problem. We could also talk about drugs, but I think one of the most serious problems we have out there are gangs, whether it's black, white, uh, Latin gangs. And I think we have a gang culture out there that the police is aware of and that in this gang culture, there is a tremendous amount of violence as a part of the initiation in some of these gangs, a person who attacks and, and fights and beats a police officer uh, obtains street credentials. Uh, in many initiation process in these gangs, uh, the killing of people uh, is part of the jump into the gang process. And I think the police is aware of that. And I think that one of the key things that we need to do as citizens and in cooperation with the police department is to help to eliminate these gangs. And I think that the police must also treat young black males as they would treat young white males with the same amount of respect. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, did you have any thoughts on that, uh, Jermaine? Yes. Uh, one of the things that I always urge, anybody that I come into contact with from the standpoint of individual responsibility is that if you have the opportunity to serve on a jury, any type of jury, go and do it with an open mind, with a lot of patience and the willingness to make the sacrifice to do it. Don't go with it with a negative mindset. Don't go into it with the mindset of let me go and try to figure out with new religion I'm going to join so I could try to get out of this or things of this nature. But go and make the sacrifice as a citizen to try to judge and evaluate a case because oftentimes 
there are, are implications, even in terms of law enforcement or crime or, or racial issues that can happen in just about any type of case. So that's something that I always urge every opportunity that I get for individuals to do if they really want to make a difference within the justice system. I think we have to have discourse. I think we have to have town hall meetings. I think we have to see across urban America uh, continue police-citizen dialogue um, amongst each other to build trust, to build respect, um, and even continue citizen review boards, as we often see in a lot of uh, uh, cities. And really the resources to put some meat behind it. Like one of the things I've even heard here in the city of Detroit, we have a citizen review board, but they've diminished their power in the past four or five years since the city filed for bankruptcy. Or our city right now is underemployed by 1,500 officers. That makes a tense situation for everybody because it, it, it poses a danger for officer safety if they're undermanned and it could escalate crime. But by the same token, if you have officers that are trained to be sensitive to the communities that they serve, to not always have the rest of judgment, to realize that this is another individual that has the right to live and, and, and prosper and thrive like we all do, then I think you will see the decrease in the amount of tragedies that we're talking about today. Thank you both for those uh, comments and for those uh, good suggestions, and hopefully they'll be, be put to good use. Uh, we'd like to hear from our audience at this time. So if you have a question for our guest or if you have a comment about today's program, give us a call. We're at 563-999-3660. That's 563-999-3660. We do have someone on the line right now, and it looks like this may be from a – uh, government agency, I'm not sure, uh, but uh, if you uh, would like to comment, I am putting you on the line right now. Hello? Hello? Uh, thank you for taking my call, sir. Uh, believe me, I'm no longer affiliated with a government agency. I'm a retired Illinois State Police officer, 26 years of service. I was a use of force instructor, SWAT team instructor, worked on the street. Uh, Fortunately, in my career, I never killed any suspect, although I almost did five or six times. Uh, And, uh, you know, a few of the things, maybe 30%, 40% of what I heard here today, I agree with. 60%, I absolutely do not. And uh, I think when you speak of these shootings, you are mixing apples and oranges. I mean, they, they, they bear almost nothing in relation to each other with regard to the circumstances of the shooting and with regard to such Supreme Court decisions as Tennessee versus Garner and the National Institute of Justice's use of force continuum, which I taught for 15 years. And when you speak of someone being unarmed and being shot, that does not preclude them, or rather preclude, a police officer from using deadly force. Again, it is circumstance and context specific. As you well know, uh, more people are killed by fists and feet every year than are killed by assault weapons. That is simply a matter of fact. 
And 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 when people, uh, no one comes, no police officer goes into an uh, 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 an encounter with the suspect, and the suspect uh, uh, and and the encounter is unarmed because the police officer brings a firearm to the encounter, and about eight to twelve percent of police officers, depending on what year you're looking at, are killed with their own firearm after being disarmed. Has officer. Um, uh, the officer in the Ferguson shooting almost was. Well, we, thank, we thank you for those those comments, sir, and we appreciate your opinion. I'm going to defer to uh, my guest today to respond to that. I think you have some good points, but I think uh, we also know, having been in law enforcement in the state of Illinois, uh, that we do have situations where we have police officers who kill unarmed suspects in making what is called honest mistakes in judgment. And that is that they suspected or thought that the person had a gun. In those cases, a lot of police officers, in order to protect themselves, historically have done a thing. They have created a kind of insurance. And what they do, and they do it today. They've done it eons ago when I was a police officer. They do what they call, they drop a throwaway uh, weapon to justify the shooting. And one of the reasons they do that, because police officers, in the eyes of the public, are supposed to be super people. They cannot make a mistake. It is very difficult or unheard of for a police officer to stand up and say, I made an honest mistake in judgment. A police officer, even though empowered with the authority to kill a person, should only do that in dire circumstances. And I do know that there are a lot of uh, black males killed in situations that really uh, warranted a citation rather than an arrest. And I know that uh, the use of force uh, is different in many police departments. And uh, I, I laud the gentleman who was an instructor, and I possibly knew, know him because I was in charge of DEA in the St. Louis area, and part of my area of responsibility was the Southern District of Illinois. Uh, but I do think that, and I do know that, we do have some rogue police officers out there. We, Out of that, we do have a high percentage of outstanding police officers that we all take our head off to. And I think of a lot of the instances that police officers go into dangerous situations, we have to applaud and laud them and admire them for their bravery bravery and their fortitude. Okay, I believe we have another caller right here. Uh, Caller, you're you're on the air with uh, CWR World News Talk. Do you have a question? Oh, no, I was just listening, just listening in. Okay, all right, very good. Uh, we have a uh, another caller on the line, I believe. Hello, uh, caller, you're on the line with CWR World News Talk. Do you have a question or a comment? Okay, apparently we've uh, we've lost the caller. Uh, you know, uh, going back to uh, what you what you said and what the uh, the officer, the gentleman, called in previously, uh, that. That to me is is one of the problems. This gentleman obviously has some very strong convictions and feelings, and and I respect that. But uh, too often it appears that uh, some of the police officers and the people in law enforcement 
they are too quick to take offense instead of looking at both sides of the issue. That's what we're trying to do here today. Uh, this, as I mentioned before, is not to be an indictment against police. Uh, we respect the police. We respect the work that they do. We respect the danger uh, that's involved in, in the job that you do. But there are elements within law enforcement, and those who uh, are so-called good officers who blindly look the other way, knowing what some of these people do, are just as guilty as they are. So even if you have these strong convictions, you can't allow that to blind you to what's really reality and what's going on in, in the world today. And and I, I believe that's 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 a part of the problem. That's one of the things we wanted we hope to address today. We have to get beyond that and really start uh looking how we can, can work together. Uh and if, and if I may add to that, the only thing that I would say in, in light of that, to me, it seems as though that particular caller supports the notion that officers can overreact in a situation when their actions are not objectively reasonable, which would comport with self-defense law. We're not necessarily saying that an officer who honestly and reasonably believes a person poses a deadly threat or a threat of serious bodily harm shouldn't be afforded the opportunity to defend themselves. What we're saying is that an officer should not, in an encounter with a civilian, bring such racial bias and animus toward that individual that they shoot first and ask questions later, and you have some tragic situation that could have been averted if you had a more fair-minded, objective police officer reacting to that situation. Uh, we are uh, taking calls right now. We'd like to hear from you if you have a comment or a question for our guests. And that number again is 563-999-3660. That's 563-999-3660. We do want to mention that uh, we uh, made an effort to contact uh, about 24, 25 major uh, police, police departments in major cities across the United States to get their input because we did want this to be a conversation. We wanted to hear from law enforcement and to get an officer's viewpoint of situations like this, what might prompt an officer to use deadly force in a situation, to get a better view, a better understanding from an officer's perspective. We had a response from one police department, and uh, we had hoped that maybe even though we did not get any more response than that, from our efforts to contact these departments, that some of those departments would call in today and uh, make their comments or uh, provide some input in, into this, this discussion. So far, that hasn't happened, but uh, we did make that effort, and we did want to have some dialogue because we believe that good comes from, from having dialogue instead of going down uh, a one-way street, but to look at all sides of, of the issue, and that's what we've attempted to do here. So, uh, Donnell, I would like to comment that I was a police officer. I was a police officer in Compton, California in 1965. At the time, right after the infamous Watts riot, and there was a lot of anti-police sentiments displayed during that time and after that time. And Compton uh, Police Department was one of the first police departments to utilize a chemical mace 
to prevent having to use excessive force. And I think we uh, avoided having to use physical force in a number of situations by using the chemical maze. And I know now that they've gone to a pepper spray, they've gone to the taser and those sort of uh, things that I think could and should be used in lieu of immediately just shooting a person. Thank you. So there are alternatives, and uh, that's that's something that definitely needs to be uh, uh, be taken into consideration. Now, before I do my commentary for today, do uh, either of you have any uh, closing thoughts, uh, John or Jermaine? I would just like to say that I think the uh, new Attorney General Jeff, uh, Jeff Sessions' um, attitude toward being more uh, overly protective or cautious of holding police departments uh, accountable for their action is certainly a downturn. It's a twist away from uh, an ideal policing situation. I think by him coming out and stating that um, he's for the police are not holding police responsible that uh, he's kind of promoting the police to do what they want to do. And I grant you, I, I love the police and the police is a very important part of our uh, community. And uh, I have the highest respect for 99.9% of all police officers. And I do know that there's a point percentage of those who are rogue police officers. And there are those out there who make honest mistakes in judgment I think the rogue police officers are the ones that should be held accountable. In addition to that, I think the chief and heads of these departments should uh, use contemporary law enforcement procedures uh, to get away from the uh, immediate use of violence to control the situation. I think they need to establish better community-oriented policing, a better relationship with the community. And I think the police officers should uh, develop a different communication uh, modality where they can be more respected in the community as well as they can not be precipitated when they approach a certain suspects uh, for certain uh, violations. I think both the community and the police department need uh, to have a kind of relationship, a kind of a marriage where uh, the community and the police can work together to alleviate especially violence against young black males. And I think the, a lot of the police department should have what they call diversity in uh, uh, law enforcement as well as they should have discretionary law enforcement. That is, they should apply the, their discretion not to arrest in a little situation that deem a, a citation. They can warn suspects as it involves white and, and black uh, suspects of persons when they are stopped. Usually, a black person is more likely to get a ticket in many situations than a white person. A black person is more likely to be arrested uh, than a white person. And this, these are facts of life. Uh, we can't deny that. Uh, and I think that a head of a police department, all the way down to the field sergeant, uh, should be aware of that. They should be aware of when we have officers who are stressed to the point that they are a threat to the community that they are policing. And we do have officers who reach that threat level, and I think it's the field sergeant who should bring that to the attention of his supervisors 
to correct that situation. And we talk about in-service training and uh, training. Training is beautiful, but a lot of times if we have the mindset of, a, of, of criminal activity, the trainer is not going to correct it. And I think that the police department should develop new alternative means of subduing dangerous suspect rather than killing the person. Thank you, John. Jermaine? I agree with what John said 200%. The only thing I would add is that it's important as well to vote. I think, you know, we have seen a political uh, shift in this country, unfortunately, uh, whereby you won't necessarily, from a federal standpoint, uh, see the amount of sensitivity in terms of uh, racial profiling and things of that nature that leads to these types of tragedies. Uh, but the solution to that is voting and, and, and trying to have elected officials from your local prosecutor all the way up to the president that will be sensitive to these issues and even directly related to voting, as I referenced earlier, is the notion of serving on a jury because you won't, you're not even selected for jury service until you become a registered voter. So it's just up to us as individual citizens to all play our part uh, in terms of trying to influence this in a positive direction. Thank you. Thank you. And I'd like to thank both of you for uh, John and Jermaine for joining us today and for the information and advice that you have uh, provided for our audience. Your contribution to today's program is greatly appreciated, and we hope to have you both back in the near future because this has to be an ongoing conversation until this issue is permanently resolved. Thank you, John L., for having me. Uh, you're, you're very welcome, John. In conclusion, we hope that this uh, program has been in some way enlightening for our audience. We also encourage you, if you have a, if you are a young black male or a person of color, to think about how you will interact with police officers should you be stopped. Remember the advice provided today by our guests and apply it in hopes that it may protect you even from those police officers who are determined to find some way to provoke you so that they may do you harm. Speaking as a black man myself, I also encourage all people of color listening to consider how we individually and as communities can overcome our anger and rage at uh, this situation and work to improve relations with the police where we live and work to restore trust. I know that this may be extremely difficult for some of us, but don't be pessimistic about this and have the attitude that it is impossible for us to make progress with this issue. As our guests have indicated, there are some things that can be done. But have a firm resolve that we will do whatever we can individually and collectively not to give police officers any cause to feel threatened or to fear us. I know, as I alluded to previously, there are some police officers who are sadistic in their behavior and who will reject every effort that is made to cooperate with them. But we cannot allow that to deter us from our course. We must, as we most often do, take the higher ground. And lastly, in regard to those rogue officers in plain sight in some police departments, it is past time for police administrators and local and state governments to identify and root out desirable, undesirable elements from our departments and to work with people of color to improve relations. It is past time for those administrators who have not already done so to step up and tackle 
this issue head on with vigilance so that our black males will not have reason to fear officers when they have stopped, when they have done nothing, and also so that officers may return home at the end of the shift safely. Thank you very much for listening. Tune in next Tuesday at 10 a.m. for another edition of CWR World News Talk. When our guest will be nationally recognized violence against women consultant Julia Owens discussing women under attack, overcoming domestic abuse. Until then, may your journey in life be filled with good health, peace, and prosperity.